James chapter 5, please. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, it's page 1013. We now come to the last chapter of, of this book. Um, I was talking with uh, uh, someone today, someone yesterday, about this, this book and this sermon series that we've been in. And, and I, I made the comment that if for no one else, this has been for my benefit, just studying this book has, has really been helpful to me personally. It's been very convicting to me in, in a lot of areas. Um, and, and I pray it's been a blessing to you too. And so as we start this last chapter, James kind of takes a little different uh, approach here. He's got the same almost sarcasm. He's got the same intensity in the book. But uh, we've said all along that he's writing to people that are uh, Christians and that they were in his church in Jerusalem, most likely, and they were scattered abroad. There's a brief interlude here where he starts to address uh, where most people believe non-believers at this point. So in James 5, 1 through 6, and there's divided opinion on this, so whether or not he's talking to believers or unbelievers at this point. My take on it is, is that he's shifting to unbelievers at this point, but for the purpose of believers, Okay, and so he's shifting uh, his his target audience in, in a way of his addressing people, but it's still for the same audience that he's been writing to all along. And so as we read this, hopefully that'll become clear, and we can make some of these observations. He he talks about he brings up a subject here that is that is very difficult and also emotionally charged, and that's the idea of money. And I don't know. Um, uh, it's probably because I knew that we were starting the, the new Financial Peace University classes here. Um, but as I look at the text, I was like, well, you know, he's really given a, us a, a lesson or a course on what not to do with money and what is wrong to do with money. And so that's why the title is James's Financial Pitfall University. And uh, there's four classes that, that he um, offers in this university of what not to do with money. Um, So let's dive right in and look at James 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and the corrosion will be evidence against you and will will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fatted your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Pretty strong words here from James. This is a, a, a scathing condemnation that he offers here to whom he labels the rich, you rich, people who had quite a bit. Now, the reason why he includes this is because we saw in chapter 1 and verse 27, he, he talks about what pure religion is and what is a, a life that God is pleased with. He says in chapter 1 and verse 27, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep 
oneself unstained from the world. And so he's talked about these topics all up until this point. And here he's addressing this keeping yourself unstained from the world. And so this is really a warning against worldliness that he is, he is giving to his people here. Because probably within his people, there were people who had wealth. We see, excuse me, you see that from chapter 1, verse 10. But, but more than that, there was probably people in his church that were really desiring wealth. And so what he decided to do is he says, look, you know, you've got to be very cautious about this because that could easily go into a worldly mentality or worldly thinking. Now, I think it's important to understand that we need to accept this truth is that we are all very susceptible to the sins of our age. You know, whatever, wherever time frame we live in, it's easy for us to be susceptible to those sins of that age. Now, that doesn't mean that sins are only limited to an age, but it does seem that there are times in history where certain sins are more prominent than others. Let's go back not even that long ago in our country's history and slavery. I mean, it was in many churches where it was taught that slavery was okay. There were well-meaning Christians who thought they were reading their Bibles correctly saying that it was okay to have the segregation and slavery that we had in our country. This is an ancient history. You know, just, just yesterday was the anniversary of, of the Selma March. And, I mean, this was 19, you know, what was it, 1965. I mean, that's not ancient history. Many of you were alive during that time. Um, my dad was, was, was almost a teenager at that point, and uh, he remembers these things. So well-meaning Christians were, were very susceptible to, to, to the sins of that age. And we can think about not just that sin, but others. And so we have to ask ourselves, okay, what is the sin of this age and in our context? And what that could do is that could reveal to us maybe some certain sins that we, are, we have a proclivity towards or that we're susceptible towards. I think in our context, uh, materialism or a desire to be wealthy, an unhealthy desire to be wealthy could be one of these sins of the age. And so I think this is what James is getting at here, is he getting at with the people that they were struggling with, and then he's also uh, giving us something that we can put into our context. I want to make it clear that throughout this message, and I'll probably say this several times, but wealth is not sinful. It's not wrong to have wealth. It's not wrong to have nice things. And James doesn't say that. But there are certain sins that are associated with wealth. So I think Albert Brown's, uh, Barnes, with this quote I want to share with you, I think uh, he captures this really well. He was uh, a pastor in Philadelphia, Presbyterian pastor. He said this, There is no sin in merely being rich. Where sin exists among the rich, it arises from the manner in which wealth is acquired, the spirit which it tends to engender in the heart, and the way in which it is used. And so what he was saying there is he's saying, look, it's not wrong to have riches. It's not wrong to have wealth, but it is wrong if you've gotten in in a bad way. If, if you have stolen and now you're rich, obviously that's wrong. It's wrong if you use your riches in an unhealthy and sinful way. That is wrong. But he's very perceptive in that middle one where he says, the spirit which it tends to engender in the heart. And this is what I think James is getting at here is a mentality or an approach to wealth or money that we need to be very cautious about. And so what are these pitfalls that he tells us to avoid? First of all, pitfall 101, hoarding, hoarding. Now, in each of these classes, there's a James context 
and then there's an R context, okay? So if you're, if you're into taking notes, I didn't put A and B on this. You're just going to get four points on the screen. But just know this, every point has an A, every point has a B, and every point's A is James's context, and every point's B is our context, just so you know that. So if you want to start writing that ahead of time, if, that, if you're a type A person and want to start writing that in, go for it, okay? But um, uh, I'm not going to put it on the screen. So what's James's context here about hoarding? Well, he says that the, the miseries are coming because he, the, he says the riches have rotted and the garments are moth-eaten, the gold and silver are corroded. Now, what he's getting at here is he's talking about the measures of wealth in that context were, uh, were you could say it this way. There was, there was uh, uh, if someone had a lot of food, then they were considered wealthy. If they had a lot of clothing, they were considered wealthy. If they had a lot of gold, they were considered wealthy. So you can say it this way, gold, garments, and grub. That was the way that wealth was measured in that time. But the way that they were hoarding, they were hoarding so much and they were building so much and they were taking on so much to themselves that it was that they couldn't use it anymore. And so the food that they had gathered for themselves and they had brought into their, their homes and they have brought to themselves, they hadn't used it because they had so much that the food began to rot and began to be wasted because they couldn't use it all because they had so much. Then the clothes, they, they began to get moth-eaten because they weren't wearing them because they had so many clothes and they were, they were keeping them and, and storing them and pretty soon they were destroyed. Now people have taken issue with this idea of, of gold or, uh, or silver corroding and some translations say rusting. They say, well, that, you know, gold and silver don't do that. But there's a tarnishing that does happen and this is the idea that he's talking about here is that you have so much gold and so much silver that just begins to tarnish because it's not being used and it's because we've hoarded so much, is what he's saying here. That's James's context, but what's our context? Because, I mean, you know, not many of us probably would fit into this category on a very specific way, whereas this, these are probably people who are unbelievers and people who are uh, using wealth and, and are extraordinarily wealthy here. But do we fit this category? How can we apply this? Because whenever we're taking the Scriptures, what we need to do is when we're trying to interpret the Scriptures, we need to figure out the, the, the context of the immediate writer there, what he was writing and what he was talking about. And then we need to make a parallel and say, okay, well, how does that bridge the gap into where I live today? And how can I apply this? Well, our context is this, is that we live in this tension, this constant tension of being prudent in saving and then hoarding. As always, there are two ditches to avoid here. The one ditch is that we are so concerned about saving money and, and, and that um, uh, we're, 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 we, we fall into the ditch of hoarding. But then the other ditch is, is that we don't, cons- we don't you know, conserve and we're not careful about saving money. And so then we're constantly um, in, in, in dire straits financially. There's two ditches to avoid here. Well, what James is talking about here, he's talking about not the, the, the person who is, is you know, saving money for, and, and being prudent with the money. He's talking about people who are just constantly bring in more in, and that's their goal, and is to have more and have more and accumulate more. The, the reality is, is that we may not consider ourselves as rich like this context, but... Compared to most of the world, we are rich. And I think that that fact needs to color and shape and drive how we use our money. 
We need to be able to be willing to give what we have. We can't, you know, one way to identify what an idol is in your life is, is there something that you cannot live without? If, if you lost something, a possession, whatever that is, and it would rob you of your joy and you don't know how you could carry on, maybe that's an idol. Okay? And so I think this is the heart that he's getting at here, is this idea of hoarding. And the idea, and it's true here about how these people were wasteful and because they had so much. And I wonder, you know, if we were to stop and consider how, consider how much we waste because we have so much, it would be very condemning and convicting. I looked at a website called globalrichlist.com and you can plug in your, your annual income and it tells you how wealthy you are. If you make $75,000 a year, you're in the top 0.11% richest of the world. You say, well, I don't make $75,000. Well, if you made $50,000, you would be in the top 0.31% richest in the world. If you made $30,000, you're in the top 1.23 richest in the world. Now, I know that there's other factors that go into this. You know, statistics can be bent, and I, and I get that. I know that there's cost of living and, and what things cost and everything. I, I get all that. But the reality is, you live in a context, and I live in a context, that if we make $30,000 a year, we have been given, we are part of 1.23% of the people who have been given the most money to manage. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not, the, the, the reaction I'm looking for here is not guilt. That's not the reaction I'm looking for. Gratefulness is what I'm looking for. And then a willingness to use whatever God has given you for his glory is what I'm looking for here, rather than hoarding to ourselves. The average worker in Indonesia makes 50 cents an hour. The average worker in China makes $1.21 an hour. The average worker in the U.S. makes seven twenty-five an hour. And so we have been given much. Now, there's other countries that have more than us as well. But that's beside the point. The point is this. We've been given much. So let's use that to give to his other people and to serve God with that rather than hoard it to ourselves. Now, you may already be doing this or you may not be. This is a spirit, you know, this is a wisdom call on your level. This is, this is where the Holy Spirit has to work in each individual heart about how you use your finances. I'm not going to put up charts of what you need to spend on this or that or what is necessary and what is not necessary. Those are all, those are all very fluid discussions that happen from one family to the next. Or what I am going to say is that I think we need to take James's warning here very seriously because what he was telling the people, he says, look, don't try to be so wealthy. Don't, don't envy the wealthy so much because misery is coming upon them. Don't, don't, don't fall into this trap because it's never enough. And so giving, you know, we need to be willing to give what God has given to us. And of course, giving involves giving to the church. And so people say, well, how much should I give to the church? And some people say, well, you got to give 10%. And that's not a bad idea. That's not a bad uh, a baseline. But if you notice, I don't preach giving 10%. The reason why is because um, for some, that may be actually be too much. You know, the, the, the situation, the financial situation you find yourself in, 10% of your income may actually be too much. But for, for most of us, 10% may actually be, and probably is actually too little. And so there's not a percentage here. And again, this text here is not giving us actual uh, concrete ways to spend our money, but it's, tell, it's getting at the heart issue of how we look at money and how we use money. And so we need to look at what God has given to us, not just in money, but what in possessions, because he's talking about you know, clothing there and, and food there. What has God given to us and how are we using it? 
And so, you know, if you walk through your house, walk through your garage, look at things of what you're using, what you're not using. Look at the toys your kids have. What are they using? What are they not using? All these things. If it's not being used, give it away. I would encourage us to go through our closets and garages and houses and take inventory of how many things that we have that we're not using. We would be surprised of how much we have that we are just simply not using. Let's find someone that could use it and give it away. I believe that's the spirit that James is getting at here. James is essentially asking the question, he says, you know, why feed the moths with your clothes when someone else can benefit from wearing them? Some people may say, but I've worked hard for what I have. Well, that's true. And it's not wrong to enjoy what God has given you. First, First Timothy 6.17 makes that abundantly clear. Again, I don't want to be misinterpreted here. There's two ditches to avoid. Again, I don't want to say that's wrong to enjoy things, wrong to have things. It's not. But we should be willing to part with things, be willing to use what we have to help others with them. But maybe God has given you the ability to work hard for what you have so you can share your abundance with those who cannot work as hard as you can. You see, we look at times of like our abilities and we say, look, I have worked very hard so I can gather this and so I can get this. I deserve this. Well, that may be true that you've worked hard to do that, and I commend you for that, by the way. But the, but the reality is there's a whole group of people in our society that cannot work as hard as you can. Maybe they don't have the education that you have. Maybe they don't have the, the health that you have. Maybe they don't have the skill sets that you have. And so they, they need help with certain things. And so maybe God's given you your abilities, not just so that you can gather wealth for yourself, but rather so that you can help others. How we view wealth and the pitfall that we all struggle with at some time or another is hoarding. So we need to ask ourselves the question, you know, did God give me this to share with others? If we ask ourselves that question, did God give me this ability or give me this possession so I can share with others? The answer is almost always yes. Whatever you have, use it to serve others. The better question that we should be asking ourselves when we take inventory of the possessions in our house, in our garages, in our cars is we, the better question to ask is not whether or not should I be using it, but is how could I be using this to serve others? How can I share this? So is it wrong to have a boat? No, it's not wrong to have a boat. But use that boat to serve others and to help others. That could be a great way to mentor somebody. Invite someone out on the boat and you know, build a relationship with the person and use it as a means to, to serve other people. Is it wrong to have a, a large home? Not at all. Not wrong to have a large home. Use that to be hospitable, though, and to share it with other people. See, the point isn't necessarily that you can't have nice things. It's just how should you use them. But we tend to want to use it just for ourselves, and we need to, risk, or we need to resist that. And the reason why we hoard, and this is the reason why I say that it's applicable to all of us, is because it's a sin that we all struggle with. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this, Whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. So there's never enough. That's why we hoard. I was thinking of the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and Martin Luther, he said this. He said, let goods and kindreds go this mortal life also. Did you catch that? Let goods and kindred go. Let's not be attached to stuff on this earth. And if we have a hoarding mentality, the reason why we're attached to is because that's where we're finding our, our, our joy. That's where we're finding our security. That's where we're finding our satisfaction. So whatever you have, it should be used for service to the king and to our Lord and to serve each other. Pitfall number two that James gives here is fraud and dishonesty. He says that in, in verse, um, at the end of verse, uh, verse 4, Behold, the wages of laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cry of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
And so what he's basically saying here is he's saying, okay, these people, they live in these large homes, and so they have people that are, that are harvesting their fields for them, they're mowing their lawns and things like this, and they've done the work for them. But then because of the love of wealth and because of the love of money, there's the, this owner is trying to find ways to not pay the full amount so he can save money, trying to fraud them and trying to be dishonest with that. Now, I think James deliberately puts this scenario right after harvest so the landowners would have no excuses when it came to paying the workers. Harvest had come in, they, they, they had their income, and so now it was time to take that income and pay the people who worked for them. But they were trying to find ways not to do that. Now, again, you say, well, how does this apply to me? I, I mow my own lawn, Jeremy. <laughs> you know, I have a vegetable garden in the back, and, and I do all the work. You know, how does this apply to me? But I think if we start thinking about this on a theological level, then on a very personal level, we'll start to see that often ways to try to beat the system um, or, or ways to be dishonest to save money, opportunities come up quite a bit. And so the principle that he's referring to here is that the love of money can push us to a dishonest or fraudulent behavior. Now, how could we see that in our context? Well, here's a few. Maybe copying music and movies that we did not pay for or have the right of ownership and watching them and owning them. That's, that's fraudulent. That's dishonesty. That's, that's wanting a benefit for something that you didn't pay for. That's what these owners did. They wanted the benefit of harvested fields and mowed lawns without paying for it. Maybe using someone else's login information to watch a sports game when you don't have the cable or satellite channel to watch it yourself. You say, man, I've never thought of some of these things. I'm not giving you suggestions. I hope you understand that, okay? All right? Some of these are things I've been tempted with, Okay? You know, when I, I couldn't watch a Michigan football game because I canceled my cable subscription and my brother had it, I thought, well, I could just sign on with his and watch it at home. That's a temptation. But thankfully, God convicted me of that and I didn't do it. Um, people would say, what's the big deal about that? I mean, they got enough money. No, it's dishonest. You're getting a benefit for not paying for it. That's exactly what they were doing. In some cases, now not all, I understand this, in some cases, those sharing cell phone plans breached the contract. Paying for a kid's ticket price at the movie kiosk and going in instead of the adult ticket price. I've read about that. Again, not giving suggestions. Getting a new ticket at the parking garage just before leaving instead of using the one you receive when you arrive because it would be much more. Abusing the return policy at a store. read about some workers who they were in town for a short term. They were there for 68 days to work in a new town. Went to Walmart, bought a huge big screen TV, kept a box, kept everything lived with it for 68 days. Walmart has a 90-day policy, and so then they packaged it up, returned it, and went home. It's cheating the system. It's dishonest. Um, telling your cell phone company that you're moving to get out of a contract, canceling and switching the name on the cable contract to continue to get the new customer price, not reporting income to the IRS, using software that you did not purchase, refusing to tip at a restaurant if the service was good, not being charged for something at a restaurant and then not saying about anything about it. When selling something on Craigslist, not disclosing the faults and flaws of that object or trying to conceal it. Once when I was managing a small car lot, there was a consignment situation and um, I get the owner of the car wanted me to sell it for him and I said, yeah, there's no problem. And so I took it for a test drive, looked at it and everything. So I called him up. I said, hey, check engine lights on. He's like, well, if, just, just put a piece of black tape over it. They'll never notice it. I said, I can't do that. That's, that's, that's being dishonest. It's fraudulent. 
But these are all temptations that, that we struggle with. And by the way, the person who suggested me to do that was a Christian. We're not exempt from this. The love of money is very powerful, and it's probably deeper rooted than we even want to imagine. And so I wonder how many times we're dishonest or fraudulent with money, and we just call it frugality. Now again, I, I, I'm not saying that you know, getting a good deal is wrong. If you know my wife at all, you know that she is the queen at getting good deals on stuff. I'm not saying that that's wrong, as long as it's honest. But we are tempted to beat the system way too much, take advantage of things. That's exactly what these people were doing. And what's, what motivates that? Love of money, let's be honest. And James says, don't, don't, don't be like these people. We may not have workers to pay like James's, like, like James's example here, but we are still susceptible to the same sinful temptation to not pay for a benefit that we are receiving. But on the flip side, because it says here, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, on the flip side, maybe you're on the receiving end of being frauded, of, of people being dishonest. Maybe you've had someone uh, 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 you know, take advantage of you financially. Here's an encouraging word for you. The Lord hears your cry. The Lord knows that. It says right there, the Lord of hosts hears you. So fraud, dishonesty is a pitfall to to avoid here. A third one, the third class in this university that James offers here is indulgence. He says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. What an image there that he gives there. Indulgence. Now, James's context is that these people were just in lavish luxury and self-indulgence. It was the idea of almost over the top, the idea of they wanted to prove that they were wealthy. And again, wealth is not necessarily the enemy here, but selfish uh, lavishness is the enemy here. And again, I, I, I can't say this enough because I don't want to be misunderstood. Having nice things is not necessarily wrong. I don't believe that. But... Um, but we can't do it for selfish um, and self-indulgence. We'll get to that in a second here. You know, sometimes we're, you know, in efforts to be frugal, you know, we can start feeling guilty about it if we buy a new sweater. You know, so, man, you know, there's people in other countries, they don't have sweaters. I shouldn't buy myself a new sweater. Maybe I should go home and save up the dryer lint and knit a new sweater out of that. Um, no, there's, there's nothing wrong with buying a new sweater. Okay, that's not the point of this message. But often we buy things that we just don't need. And I've been, I've been convicted of this and, and some things, and sometimes it's not necessarily in possessions of like big things because we often excuse ourselves and say, look, I, I don't have a boat. I don't have this. I don't have that. You know, um, but maybe it's a, a food runs, you know, buying food that we just don't need. Maybe it's, um, you know, swinging through and getting a, you know, the shamrock shake that's out right now, you know. I'm not against shamrock shakes. I love them. Probably too much, okay? That's the point. Wisdom call. Sometimes it's okay, sometimes it's not. It's a wisdom call. Indulgence. Be very careful about this. Our context is that we worship comfort and ease. That is our main goal in life, of comfort and ease. John Piper said, to be a Christian means to move towards need, not comfort. How many times do we buy things that we don't really need, but we talk ourselves into it? This is the, this is the pitfalls that James is saying, don't, don't do this. This is, how, this is how the world is. This is how the world approaches money. You should approach money from a completely different way because you're a Christian. 
We're told to deny ourselves and take up our cross in Matthew chapter 16. So the question you've got to ask yourself is, how are you denying yourself? So maybe a better question to ask, though, because you know, we would say, well, I don't have this, and, you know, I don't have this huge house, and, and you know, all this type of thing, and, you know, I, I, don't, I don't travel to, you know, Europe on my vacations and all that stuff. Um, maybe a better question then to ask is, of what you can afford, what are you denying yourself? Because a lot of times we just excuse ourselves from this and say, well, yeah, I, I'm not living this lavish lifestyle. Well, yeah, because you go bankrupt if you didn't, and you want to you have a place to sleep, and you want to have food to eat. But the question I think that gets really at the heart of this is, of the things that you could afford, what are you denying yourself? Well, this has been convicting to me. It's so easy just to take it because I want it, get it because I have it. I, I, I've got the money in my wallet. I can spend it however I want, and so... I buy it because I feel like it. I remember in a display of my sinfulness one time, Anouk asked me, you know, why I stopped someplace, I don't know, McDonald's or something like that. And I said, because I can, you know, because I wanted it. That was sin, I think. I look back and confess that as sin because in my own heart, now again, stopping at McDonald's is not necessarily sinful, although looking at the menu, maybe some people would say it is. But um, my point is, that's the, I hope you see the point here. I feel like I've got to do lots of clarifications in this message. But, and, and, it, and, it, and it changes from one person to the next. It might be okay for you to go get a Shamrock Shake at McDonald's, but it might be sinful for me to do it. And we may have the same amount of money in our wallet. It's a matter of heart disposition, entitlement things of that nature. And there's other factors in that. So I hope you get what we're trying to say here. Indulgence. How many times do we hear preach to us, you deserve this. Your life will be so much better with this. We we indulge way too much. And it's living a life of worldliness. I want to run the risk of overstating this and rather the risk of understating it, if I can be honest. The final pitfall course that James offers here is oppression. Now, this is the hardest one to get my mind around. Just to be completely transparent as I was studying this. Verse 6 says, You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person, he does not resist you. In all my studies, this is not hyperbole. Uh, This is not uh, overstating a point to make the point. This is uh, probably a a literal uh, event that James was talking about here. And, and, and we know in chapter 2, in verse 6, it says, uh, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name of which you are called? And so he's talked to the Christians already about this, whom he's writing to. And he says, look, you've been oppressed by these people here. You, you've experienced this. And so here he has this idea of saying, talking to the rich and saying, here's why they are condemned. Just because they are using their position. They are using their power. They are using their place to condemn other people and to oppress and to keep people down. The reason why we think this is a, a literal place is because the youth, the words used here were legal terms, and they were probably legal reference here. I think the point here is that the wealthy had access to and influence over the court systems, but the poor did not. This is the reason why he says he does not resist you. The reason why he doesn't resist is because he can't. He doesn't have access to the same privileges that the rich did. The suppression that was happening here. You say, well, wait a minute here. Now, how does this apply to us? What's the context here? I mean, that's James's context. What's our context here? How do we oppress people with the wealth that you say we have, Jeremy? Well, we do live in a society that preys upon the poor. 
Places like title loan companies often profit on the hardship of others. Now, the problem that we make, and I was reading this just this last week, there's been a trend in preaching that in evangelical circles where we only make applications personally, whereas I think we need to broaden the application. That's important to make those personal applications, but we, we need to broaden it to where we make societal applications as well. We live in a society. We have responsibility to the society in which we live, and we need to make this place a better place if possible. So I think that we live in a place that does oppress people. Proverbs 13.23 says, The follow ground of the poor would yield much fruit, but it's swept away through injustice. It's true. It happens. I think part of another way that this could happen on a very practical level, though, is the Christian sometimes allows people to take the fall for something they have done because they have a worse reputation than they do. The illustration comes to mind of Les Mis, and remember the story of Les Mis. You guys know it's my favorite, one of my favorite stories. Uh, Jean Valjean, he's a convicted criminal. He goes away. He starts a new life. He becomes uh, the mayor of the city. He's very successful, uh, but he's got this, this record that um, uh, Javert is uh, uh, chasing him, the police captain, if you will, chasing him down, trying to get him. He's, 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 he's trying to get this guy. And so um, you got this battle throughout this movie, Javert versus Jean Valjean. And uh, uh, there's a man that they, they catch and they say, we have caught Jean Valjean. Well, it's not him. It's an insane criminal. Um, and so, but they said, this is the man we know we have caught him. And Jean Valjean is faced with a, 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 a intense decision at that moment. He can let this innocent person who was a criminal, but innocent in the sense of he wasn't him. He can let him take the fall. He can let him die. And then his name would be forever. He would be free from being pursued by this police key, uh, Chief Javert. Or he had to own up to it. In the musical, he, this is when the song, Who Am I, comes on. And he's, this song is a, just a, a beautiful uh, picture of the internal battle that he is facing. He's just saying, well, who am I? Am, am I? am I this new person? I, I've, got, I've got this, you know, people who depend on me, and, and I've made something myself, but I'm Jean Valjean. And he goes back and forth, and in the end, he goes before the courts, and he says, who am I? I'm Jean Valjean. I am the man, not this man. He refused to let this person take the fall for him. I think sometimes we if we can get out of a situation at work and someone else has to take the blame, we're willing to do that. I believe this is the same attitude here. When I was a kid, my, uh, my grandparents had this, this tractor that you could ride on. It was one you sat on and pedal type deal. You know, you rode around. And that was the favorite toy for all the grandchildren. And we'd fight over this thing, okay? And I remember I was riding it around a little bit, and then my brother rode it and other people rode it. And then after a little while, my grandfather came out to me, and my grandfather was a pretty mild man, but um, he, he must have, you know, had a bad day or something, but he was, he was pretty amped up, and he, he, he said, Jeremy, you put a scratch on this tractor. I said, no, I didn't. He says, yes, you did. I saw you riding this. You put this on there. Well, you know, I didn't know how that got there, okay, but I didn't do it. That's all I knew. I didn't do it. And I was like, no, I didn't. So finally, at the end, I'm a young boy. I'm intimidated. I'm like, okay, I did it. I'm sorry. You know, he's like, that's all I asked for, you know. So we go home, and I'm telling my mom about this, and I'm like, I didn't do it. And my brother, he says, my little brother says, yeah, I did it, you know. And my brother had stood there the whole time, okay. This story is still talked about at family reunions. 
my mom uncorked on my brother so bad that, I mean, horror movies could be made of that scene. Okay? She said, Jason, you let your brother take the fall for that and you stood right there? And my brother had some lame excuse like, well, I didn't want to interrupt Grandpa or something, you know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so to this day, we still tease about this thing, you know. And, but Mom took that so seriously. I mean, she, she called my grandpa over and said, you come over, they only live a couple blocks away, you come over here. And so, you know, Jason, you tell him and everything like this. And, you know, I'm sitting there with a smug grin on my face at that point. But, um, but how many of us would be willing to let someone else take the guilt or responsibility for maybe a mistake we made at work or what we've done at home? This is the same attitude, and you say, how does that relate to wealth? Well, the wealth of a reputation. It's the desire for people not to, um, for people not to think bad of us. And so we can't let other people take the punishment for what we've done. But you say, well, wait a minute here. Isn't that what justification's about? Isn't that what Christ did for us, taking the punishment? How does that jive with that, Jeremy? But well, here's how it jives. The justification, and, and some people teach that it, it means just as if I never sinned, and I understand the sentiment behind that, and I understand it's not a bad definition, but it does miss an important ingredient, and that's the acknowledgement of guilt. Okay? See, justification means I'm guilty, everyone knows I'm guilty, but Jesus has taken the punishment for me. See, that's the difference, is that the guilt is established. My guilt is established. In this case, guilt is trying to be hidden and, and put aside, but guilt is established. And so this oppression that can happen to people less fortunate and to people who do not have the same things that we do, this oppression that can happen is one of the reasons why then in the Old Testament, if you read through Leviticus, um, there were laws, there were laws of gleaning that were in place. And so that the people, so if they were harvesting things and things fell to the ground, we read about this in Ruth, is that when things fell to the ground, they weren't to pick it up. After they were done, then the less fortunate were to come through and they were to pick up those things that fell down so that they would not go hungry. This is the reason why laws of Jubilee, Jubilee laws were put in place so that every 50 years the land would go back to original owners and so that way there it wasn't this mass and mass and mass of ownership and land and then people didn't have any. It was a way that they could profit for a while but then it would go back and it would be reset and, and it was a way of keeping people from being oppressed. All throughout the Old Testament we see this idea of not being careful not to oppress people. But the people who are concerned with wealth, they don't care about that. They only care about making themselves stronger financially, even if it means stepping on top of somebody else. R. Kent Hughes said this, he says, we who have advantages of education and wealth and perhaps position must take great care not to harm others, especially those less fortunate, as we pursue our livings. So if we've been blessed richly, we need to make sure that we're using those things to help others, not push them down. We may not be using our wealth to oppress people, but are we using our wealth to help the oppressed? Question to ask. Difficult message this morning in a lot of ways. I've preached it in a completely different way than I normally preach. It's um, convicting to me on many levels. It's something I think we need to be very cautious of as a society because I do believe that as a society, in a materialistic society, we need to recognize and be honest with ourselves that we are more susceptible to these sins than we probably realize. 
So we need to be very cautious that we're not following the worldly pattern that James is setting up here. In fact, we're doing the opposite. We're caring for people. Again, I, I got to say this again. It's not wrong to have things. It's not wrong to have nice cars. It's not wrong to have wealth. It's not wrong to have big homes. But my question is, how are you using them? And who are you helping with those things? That's the better question. The misuse of wealth is bad. Wealth is not bad. The spirit that wealth tends to stir in our souls is to be avoided. James is telling his brothers and sisters here to avoid desiring the life of the rich. In a rebuke to the rich, he wants his listeners to hear of the sins that are often associated with the rich. So by review hoarding, we cannot lose what we have is the thought there. Fraud or dishonesty, we have to get more by any means. Indulgence, we have to prove what we have. Oppression, we can't let others rise up and threaten our position. So when we hoard, when we're dishonest, when we indulge, when we oppress, the real reason why we do that is because Christ is not our supreme treasure. And that is the most condemning thought of the day. Christ needs to be our extreme treasure, our our supreme treasure. And if I find my heart going after, oh, I need this, it's so convicting to me, my brothers, my sisters, because all I start to see at that moment is Christ has just become diminished in my life. And I hate that. It's a constant battle that we face. So let's not hoard. Let's not be fraudulent, dishonest. Let's not indulge. And let's not oppress. Rather, let's use what God has given us for His glory and for and in ways to worship the giver of those good gifts. Let's pray. Father, as I've mentioned, this was difficult for me in many ways. Um, uh, this is one of those messages where I feel like it's easily to be misunderstood. So I pray your spirit would take what has been said here and make it clear to us And that this text here would be driven home by your spirit in a very applicable way to each of our contexts and each of our situations. I pray that we would not seek to justify ourselves if the spirit of God is convicting us. But rather I pray that we would fall in repentance and and follow you and use the wealth that you have given to us to manage for your glory. I pray that you give us a proper view of money of wealth, of possessions, and that we would use them for your namesake, for your glory. I pray that we'd enjoy them too. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think, Father, that you will give us the most enjoyment out of those possessions when they're used for you. Now help us to believe that tomorrow and the rest of the week. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.